Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. Good afternoon and welcome to Concord Matters, where we gather together because this concord, this harmony that we have, agreement in our Christian faith and in our confession of who God our Father, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the Holy Spirit are, really does matter. And so we are here on Concord Matters today, taking up the Apostles' Creed and why we need to use the creeds. For those of you who were expecting the dulcet tones of Pastor Sean Smith, uh, Sean and his young son had a little bit of a fall at home, and his son is undergoing some medical care. Uh, He's recovering well at home, but Sean is taking some time with his family and serving his congregations. And so I get to sit in here for the next month, and I am Pastor Peter Ill. I get to serve God's people as pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church, and that is in Millstadt, Illinois. Gathering with us today to uh, participate in this concord and harmony that we have is Reverend Dr. Kirk Clayton, who gets to serve as pastor at Zion Lutheran Church in Mascuda, Illinois. Pastor Clayton, it is wonderful to have you here on the program with us today. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to be with you. It's always a joy to be able to confess the faith and to do so in a public forum such as this opportunity on KFUO as well. And it is wonderful just to get to recognize that uh, Dr. Clayton got his uh, PhD degree in apologetics, especially in light of confessing the gospel in light of the new atheists today. And that helps us to kind of start thinking about the Apostles' Creed, creeds in general, and why we need them. The Apostles' Creed is of the three ecumenical or uh, universal creeds that are confessed through the entire church. Are, uh, is one of the is the oldest, and as we get to study this creed, Pastor Clayton, what's the history of the Apostles' Creed? Why does it matter, and what's its uh, why was it needed when it was written? Well, before we talk specifically about the formulation and need of the Apostles' Creed, let's take a step back and talk about the importance of confessing the faith in general. First, the Christian religion has always been one that professes a teaching, a doctrine, a belief system handed down to us starting from Jesus Christ himself and then spread from there through the apostles. Even before that, Judaism is a religion that is marked by writings, by beliefs, and we could even say by a creed. We could go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and if you're at all familiar with the history of Judaism, this will come as no surprise to hear that the Jewish religion clings to Deuteronomy 6 much as we would use a creed. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5 is called the Great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. 
And as we hear this great Shema, the creed of Judaism, we can even think about times where this became a question in Jesus' ministry, and the scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, would come to Jesus and they would ask him questions that kind of led him back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. At one point they ask, what is the great commandment? And Jesus basically quotes the second half of of our passage from Deuteronomy chapter 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all, all your soul, with all your might. And then he adds in the second commandment, it's like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so Judaism itself is a religion that has a formulated set of teachings based on scriptures that they believe. And that then is summarized in shorter statements such as here the great Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Jesus then goes on to call for his followers, likewise, to be ready at all times to make a statement of faith, to confess, and to confess specifically that Jesus is the Lord that Jesus is God, one with the Father, one with the Holy Spirit, as we'll talk about a bit later. And so in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33, Jesus says, so everyone who confesses me before men, I also will confess before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And so no less an authority than Jesus himself calls for his followers to confess the faith, to state the faith that they have, and that we as Christians should be ready at any time to give a statement, to give an acknowledgement of what we believe, specifically who Jesus is and what we believe that he has done. I might also uh, make a comment here about confession, because confession sometimes is used two ways in the church. We might be familiar with the idea that we confess our sins. And so in the Lutheran church, at the beginning of the divine service, we have the confession and absolution. We're using confession in a little bit different sense here in terms of confessing our faith. To confess, if you take the word apart, means to same say, to say the same thing. So as we confess our faith in Jesus Christ, what we are doing is we are same saying, we're saying the same thing about Jesus Christ that our brothers and sisters in Christ say about him throughout the world and, in fact, throughout time and history. And so to confess Christ is to speak consistently of Jesus Christ, and then by extension also of the Father and the Holy Spirit, in the same way, and in fact, using the same words that the church has used for 1,500 years, 1,700 years, almost 2,000 years. And so to confess, as Jesus calls us to do, is to speak consistently, to speak the same words of faith about the triune God as the church has used to express our faith in triune God from the time of Jesus and the apostles onward. So that gives us some idea as to the nature of confession itself, that Jesus calls us to confess, to confess him before men, that he would confess us, acknowledge us before his Father in heaven. Now, the church then took this 
admonition very seriously. And we see how then this act of confessing Jesus and saying what it is that we believe about him and about the nature of the triune God works its way out through the New Testament. Now, there is a legend about the Apostles' Creed that we'll just mention here briefly, uh, that the Apostles' Creed uh, was written by the 12 apostles in Jerusalem. It was actually given a date. It was said it was 10 days after Jesus' ascension, which is the day of Pentecost. And as the Holy Spirit was poured out, the legend says that each one of the 12 apostles was by divine inspiration given a phrase of the apostles' creed that we then have in our form today. So as the Holy Spirit was poured out, St. Peter was moved to say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. And St. Andrew was moved to say, maker of heaven and earth, and so on. And so then they divide up the creed into 12 different phrases, each one supposedly contributed by one of the 12 apostles on the day of Pentecost. Um, It's a nice story, probably highly unlikely that the creed actually originated in that exact way, in part because we don't actually see the exact words of the creed that we have now known as the Apostles' Creed recorded anywhere in Scripture. We do have other basic creedal formulas uh, recorded in Scripture. And so if the Apostles' Creed had been given in that way on the day of Pentecost directly to the 12 apostles, each one contributing one phrase, we probably would have had it written down somewhere. It's probably just a pious legend, but it's a fun one, and we can have fun every now and then. Now, what we do have are statements for example, in Paul and other apostles, where they will very clearly say, this is what has been taught in the church. And we are going to give you in our writing now the same thing that the church has already said. One example of this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which we refer to as the great resurrection chapter of the Bible. And St. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, there are a couple of things there to look at. One, it, it this one kind of flies under our radar screen a little bit, and it's this. St. Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. This is a marker in the New Testament that you have a creedal statement coming. And so when St. Paul says, I have received this myself, what he's saying is, this is the teaching of the church. This is what I am receiving because this is the same confession about Jesus that is made by the other apostles, by the churches in the different locations. We are unified in this same saying, this confessing, this saying the same thing about Jesus and specifically here about his resurrection. So we kind of miss this sometimes, but there are various times that St. Paul will do this. He'll say, this is what I received and now I pass on to you. So what he's saying is, I'm not making this up. This is already the current teaching of the church and has been for some time. It's been handed on. It's in the church tradition. And so now this is a statement, a creed that we say together as I pass on to you. So there's that background that this is a creedal statement. 
And then if you listen carefully to what that statement was, he says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. Now, if you're listening to those words, you probably have some of the words of the Apostles' Creed echoing in the back of your mind and saying, oh, that actually sounds very similar to, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried. On the third day, he rose again. And so you already have this parallelism that what has been handed down already to Paul by, what, 40, 50, 60 AD is still reflected in what we say in the Apostles' Creed. And it was not new to Paul. It was already in circulation in the church before his time. Paul is not the only person that does this. We see another example, for example, in the book of Jude, verses 3 and 4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. And so Jude also points out that the faith is not something he is communicating to them for the first time. He is simply restating what was delivered to the saints. And so this is a teaching that is in general acceptance in the church. It is kind of a creedal statement then. And so Jude is not making up something new. He is simply same saying. He is confessing. He is using the same statement of belief as the church has used already for a generation at that point. Now, what Jude passes along is interesting. He says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's a twofold nature to confessing the creeds. One is kind of a, a positive use in that Jesus says, say with the rest of the church, your faith about me. State together in fellowship with your fellow Christians what it is you believe about me. Confess me, and that's in a positive sense. What Jude brings out here is kind of a negative sense, that there are those who would corrupt and pervert the faith. And in light of these dangers to the purity of the faith, it's important to know what it is that you believe. And so a creedal statement becomes very important when what we call a heresy arises so that we can recognize what is true scriptural teaching and what is false, what is a heresy, and make that distinction between the two and continue to hold fast and confess that which is true. And so the, the history of creeds in the church also is closely tied to the history of heresies in the church. So we would still confess Christ if there were no heresies. But what heresies do is they refine how we need to shape that confession so that we can clearly state what it is that we believe in light of what it is that we don't believe. And so heresies, as, as frustrating as they are, actually tend to have a very clarifying and strengthening effect on the church. And so what we see in the Apostles' Creed certainly flows from Jesus' own words, from the Apostles' teaching from Scripture, but it's also refined in a way by perhaps some of the heresies that the early church faced, perhaps a couple of them uh, being um, 
being docetism, the idea that Jesus did not really actually have a physical body, he was not actually uh, really fully human, and Gnosticism, the idea that just a, a vague spiritual knowledge without any emphasis on the physical is important in the Christian church. Now, when you think about the Apostles' Creed, you think it, it focuses that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, that he suffered, he actually suffered, he died, he was buried. These are all very earthly, physical descriptions that he was bodily raised from the dead. Think in the third article that there's the resurrection of the body. So you have these professions that the physical, the bodily nature of our humanity is important too. And so creeds are called for by Christ. They're in the tradition of the church, but they also are then shaped and refined by the heresies, by the false teachings that the church faces so that we can confess clearly and pointedly what it is that we believe, both in a positive sense and what we believe compared to what is false teaching in a negative sense. And James or Jude kind of brings that out here in verses three and four as he talks about not only uh, sharing again that faith which was handed over to the saints, but also in order to clarify because evil people had crept in to pervert the Christian faith. So there's kind of a, a rather lengthy background to the concept of creeds and confessing a creed in the first place. We've talked a little bit about the history of the Apostles' Creed specifically. And hey, Pastor then, Clayton, pardon a quick interruption, if it's okay. I, mm -hmm. There's just a couple things I want to make sure that I'm following well, because that, that's all wonderfully said. Uh, but I have, I have my notepad going with a couple of things I wanted to make sure I, that I understand that you said. So a creed is a short formulaic statement of what we believe drawn from the scriptures. That's your working definition of creed uh, yes. today? Yes, Excellent. that would work. I just wanted to make sure that we stopped and said, this is what a creed is. Yeah. Now, uh, it's important to say that you cannot go to, for example, um, Acts chapter 12 and see the exact text of the Apostles' Creed. So yes, the creeds are drawn from Scripture, and yet the creeds don't exactly, they are not exactly cited verbatim in their entirety in any one point of scripture. So I sometimes talk to my confirmation class when, they, when they're moaning and complaining about having to memorize the creeds and Luther's explanation. I say, well, you know what? Here's the Apostles' Creed. It's three moderately short paragraphs long. You can memorize that. Or, you know, here is the, uh, the 66 books of the Bible. You can memorize that. One or the other, take your pick. They, they've all chosen the creed so far. Um, <laughs> But yes, the creed then is not a, an exact quotation or citation, but a summary of the teachings that we receive in Scripture. That's great. And as you were talking about in Deuteronomy 6, you referred to that as the Shema. Can, uh, can you tell us why that's called the Shema? Well, my Hebrew is a little rusty, but if I recall, Shema is the Hebrew verb to hear. And so uh, the, the first word simply is, hear, O Israel, listen up pay attention. <laughs> uh, the Lord your God is one. And so Shema simply reflects this call to listen, to hear, to pay attention. And then at what we hear with our ears, we then repeat with our mouths and our lips. And so we hear what is handed down to us through the church. And then with our mouths, with our lips, we confess, we same say, uh, we repeat again with our mouth what our ears have heard about the teaching of the truth of the faith. Excellent. And when I was taking Hebrew, my professor made us memorize uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6. 
And and I can vouch for you. The first word of that phrase, that confession, is uh, is here, Shema. Uh, so excellent. My Hebrew is a little rusty too, but sounds like our rusty Hebrew agrees. It's always a good day. Yes. Um, excellent. Well, can you tell us a little bit more about the history of the Apostles' Creed and what uh, what exactly was being clarified as far as the you talked about Docetism and uh, Gnosticism as being heresies. How does the Apostles' Creed go on to clarify our Christian confession in light of those those particular heresies? Well, this is where things get a little bit murky, because the Apostles' Creed, as we have it recorded today, the exact words of the Apostles' Creed, don't seem to be reflected exactly until maybe the 500s, maybe the 700s AD. Now, there was certainly in general use before that, but in a little bit more fluid form. There was a Trinitarian confession that we believe in one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe that the Father created, the Son redeemed, and the Holy Spirit sanctifies, gives us uh, faith and holiness in Christ. And then in the second middle article about Jesus Christ, we believe that he is true man, that he was crucified, rose, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. So there is that general framework, and that probably goes back to the time of the apostles and the very earliest days of the early church, uh, late first century, early second century. But the exact wording that we use today isn't found written down and reflected specifically for a few hundred more years, maybe 500, maybe 700 AD. Now, the creed was in general use before that, but it was an oral recitation either of a statement or an answer to questions and could at times flex a little bit based on the need of a congregation, uh, perhaps where a, a point of division had arisen in a congregation, and so a particular point needed to be clarified there, or in a broader sense of a heresy, such as we talked about with Gnosticism or Docetism. And so the creed flexed a little bit for a few hundred years, and then by about 500 to 700 AD, we start to see it written down um, in verbatim, the form that we have today. We have snippets that are quite similar before that, uh, but there was always the, the flexibility before that, that it could shift and change to the needs of a parish or the needs of the church in general. And this, uh, this creed was closely tied to a believer being baptized in the Christian faith. And a part of baptism was, if you are becoming now a member of this Christian church, what do you believe this Christian church teaches? And so either the person being baptized would be called upon to give a recitation of the faith, which sounded a lot like what we now use as the Apostles' Creed, or the priest, or deacon, or bishop would ask a question, which sounds an awful lot like the Apostles' Creed, to which the person being baptized would say, yes, that is what I believe. In fact, that's the form of the Apostles' Creed that we still use in our baptismal liturgy in the Lutheran Church today. Just before uh, baptism, during the um, 
the renunciations. There's, do you renounce the devil? Do you renounce all his works? Do you renounce all his ways? And then the question comes, do you believe in, and then comes the exact words of the first article of the Apostles' Creed. Do you believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? Yes, I believe. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord? And then there's the entire wording of the second article of the Apostles' Creed. Yes, I believe. Third article, the same thing. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church? And all the way through the third article of the Apostles' Creed. And the candidate for baptism says, yes, I believe. And so the the creed for the first few centuries was used very specifically in this instance of baptism to make sure that the person being baptized recognized what it is that the church that he or she was being baptized into, the faith that he, he or she was being baptized into, contains. And so there were, were some variations that could say, well, in this congregation, there, there's a group that, that particularly needs to hear more about this, so we're going to expand this a little bit. And the, the question posed to the baptismal candidate um, in other places, maybe something else needed to be taught. So there was some variation, some fluidity. Uh, then by about five to 700 AD, it became pretty standardized and very recognizable based on what we would still see today in the Apostles' Creed. But the faith delivered to God's saints hasn't really changed. Uh, the way it was articulated and said out loud flexed a little bit, but that it, in general, the what we know as the Apostles' Creed was uh, was in use with a little bit of variation. Um, how early would you say? Maybe like 150 AD before or after that? I would probably sense before that. Um, there's certainly nothing in the Apostles' Creed that would not have been taught by the Apostles. They may not have, you know, on the day of Pentecost by divine revelation recited these 12 statements verbatim, but they certainly had the foundation of all of those teaching. And I, I don't think it's out of the question that uh, by the late first century, very early second century, that you would have this type of practice going on, especially in terms of the rite of baptism. And um, I believe, if I'm recalling correctly, that something fairly similar to the Apostles' Creed is noted by Irenaeus, who was a student of a um, saint named Polycarp, who was a student of, wait for it, wait for it, St. John, the beloved apostle. Uh, and so you have something very similar to the Apostles' Creed just two generations after the Apostles, and that's when it's written down. That's when we have a written recording of something quite similar to the Apostles' Creed, which means that it wasn't anywhere new at that point, that it had been in practice for some time already. And so as we see with St. Paul in his um, very creedal statement, very similar to the middle part of the second article of the Apostles' Creed from 1 Corinthians 15. If I recall, I think the date of 1 Corinthians is writing maybe perhaps 40 to 50 AD, somewhere in that time frame. And St. Paul saying this is not new at that point. And so there were certainly creedal statements being made already in the time of the Apostles. And within, I would say, a generation or two after the death of the apostles, so late first century, early second century, you're going to start to see something that, while not exactly the same, is certainly recognizable as quite similar to what we know today as the Apostles' Creed. Wonderful. 
we're getting ready to take a little bit of a break. So for our listeners, uh, as we come back, I, I would love to ask Pastor Clayton what we're going to, uh, what was going on in the world um, in that time shortly after the death and resurrection of Jesus and in the first hundred years after that, that this creed is clarifying and uh, a way that we can continue to use the Apostles' Creed today to state that faith once delivered to the saints that contains the good news and the deliverance of our God for us. Uh, so with that, we'll take a short break here on Conquered Matters. Uh, I am Pastor Peter Ill sitting in for Pastor Sean Smith, and we're joined today by uh, Pastor Kirk Clayton from Zion Lutheran Church in Mascuda, Illinois. I'm Pastor Ken Bomberger. Join me weekday mornings at 7.15 for Oratio, your time of scripture, meditation, and music on KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. to Concord Matters, where this confession of faith, saying what it is that we believe about our triune God and our Lord Jesus Christ, really does matter. And today, we get to do that in terms of the Apostles' Creed. I am guest host Peter Ill, pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois, and we are joined today by Pastor Kirk Clayton from Zion Lutheran Church in Mascuda, Illinois, talking about the Apostles' Creed and why this is important for us. Pastor Clayton, before the break, we got to visit a bit about the history of creeds in Scripture and their importance, uh, how they were instructed and given to us by Jesus, even though we don't have the words of the Apostles' Creed as we know it today, uh, and that creeds often are a reflection to clarify what is going on in the world around the church. What kind of things were going on early in the church's history, oh, maybe in the second century, that the Apostles' Creed was reacting to and clarifying? Well, sometimes we get uh, a little bit confused in our day and age in that we live in a cultural setting that has a lot of influence from Christianity in it. That was certainly not the case in the early days of the church. The church started as a very small sect, originally thought of perhaps as an offshoot, as a branch of Judaism. Then by about the time of the death of the apostles, the church was beginning to be seen as something different from Judaism, which um, was a challenge because Judaism was a protected religion in the Roman Empire. And once Christianity was seen as something different from Judaism, it lost the protection from persecution that was granted to the Jewish religion. And so starting from about the mid-60s onward, the church would face times of persecution from the Roman Empire because uh, Christianity then did not have the protected status of Judaism, and it did not agree with the practices of 
the Roman pagan religion, and most specifically, it refused to simply add Jesus and the triune God to the long list of Roman gods, including the emperor. And so uh, Roman religion tended to be very, very tolerant so long as you acknowledge their gods. You could do whatever you wanted. You could worship whatever or whoever you wanted so long as you acknowledged the Roman gods, Jupiter, Saturn, and so on, and acknowledged the Roman emperor as being divine. And perhaps you might be called upon to uh, place a little pinch of incense in an incense burner in honor of the emperor as a divine god. Now, Christianity, following from Judaism of saying there is only one god, refuses to do that. Now, Judaism had received some protected status in the Roman Empire. Christianity did not have that. And so from the mid-60s AD onward, for the next roughly 250 to 300 years, the church faced sporadic instances of persecution. Uh, A new emperor would arise and might bring more persecution, or a new governor in a particular region might have a particular grudge against Christianity, and some sort of persecution would break out. Uh, And so the church was called to always be ready to confess, because you never knew when that confession, even with the threat of your life being on the line was going to be called for. And so the first three centuries of the church were centuries of martyrs, where people would confess their faith. And so the Apostles' Creed gave them a ready response. Well, do you worship the Roman emperor as God? No. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ's only Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. There is no room among those three for your Roman emperor. No, I do not believe in your own Roman emperor as God. I believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the creed could shape that confession under pressure and under persecution and facing death. Uh, but the Christian church then was given the faithful words to say in response to this pressure. Now, the first few centuries of the church were not only times of persecution, there were also times of some doctrinal confusions. We talked about some of the heresies that arose. And so as a various heresy would arise, the church would gather and discuss how do we understand the scriptures? How then do we understand this heresy? And how do we respond? What formulation of teaching do we use to clarify what it is that scripture properly says, as opposed to what this heresy would lead us to believe? And so in these first few centuries of the church, you have times of persecution and you have times of heresies. And so the creeds became very, very important during those times to confess to the world with clarity, with absolute clarity, what it is that the church does and does not believe, what the church does and does not teach. Now, for oh, maybe 1,500 years after that or so, things became a bit more peaceful, a bit more settled for the church. I say that a little bit hesitantly because there's always challenges coming up in the church. But there was a a period that we call Christendom where there seemed to be less outward pressure on the church, not the persecutions, not so much the, the, the heresies and strife that we see in the first three centuries. And so 
maybe a century back or so, it became popular to say, well, we don't really need the creeds as much anymore. They are a time-bound confession of, uh, uh, of a situation that we just don't face anymore today. Well, I think the last few years has really shown that uh, thought to be uh, very false. I would say that while, yes, we now live in a culture that has a lot of its history shaped by Christian teaching, or at least Christian tradition and ideas, we are now living in an era that is probably more similar to the era the church lived in in its first three centuries than at any point in between. And so how the church confessed the faith in its first three, four, five centuries is probably more applicable now in the 21st century than it has been from, say, the 5th century up until the 20th century. I think the time that we're living in now is much more similar to the time of the early church than any time in between. And so how the early church responded to the challenges to its faith can be very, very instructive for us today in how we should respond to challenges to our faith. And those challenges to the faith are starting to come left and right fast and furious. In the time of the Roman Empire, we mentioned that the Roman Empire was very tolerant so long as you included their gods in your worship. Now, think of how tolerant today's society would claim to be so long as you include what is important to today's society in your doctrinal formulations. And much of that in recent years, months, even days, has focused on the question of human sexuality. We'll be tolerant of many, many things so long as you agree that people can be whatever gender they feel that day and they can change and act on that and participate in any way that their felt and uh, assumed gender leads them to do. And so long as you buy into that, you can do really whatever you want. will be very tolerant. But that is not what scripture gives us to say. Another thing is uh, racial issues, of which really the church has an extremely strong history to stand on, but that's not perceived today. And so we think about, uh, you know, if you want to be canceled in today's culture, say or do anything that's perceived as racist or intolerant of someone who is different from you. And in the light of this, the Christian church needs to have very clearly formulated ideas of what it is that we believe and what it is that we don't believe because we are going to be pressured. We have been pressured more so in the last few years and will continue to be pressured more so to say and do exactly what the rest of culture says and does. And that's not what scripture says. And we cannot give into that pressure. We must stand firm and the creeds provide, it's sometimes called the rule of faith, the guideline by which we must confess and state what it is that we believe. We cannot break this rule. We must continue to confess with the church throughout all time and all of history and all places what the scripture says, including about human sexuality, about uh, how we are called to live together as male and female as God created us. That's probably a different topic for a different day. It's just where that pressure is coming against the church today. But the creeds then give us the words to say, this is true, this is right, this is what scripture teaches. 
this is wrong. This is contrary to what scripture teaches, and we will not submit to that formulation. That's really helpful. Do you think it's fair to say that as the church is is kind of being pushed by the world um, around us to keep the emphasis on what it is that we believe about God himself, about God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, without uh, without leaving that behind? Uh, sorry, that was a really clunky question. Uh, I'll try again. Uh, how do we continue to uh, maintain our emphasis on who God is and what God does in light of the world asking us to uh, consider things from another point of view? I think we have the uh, tremendous blessing of being able to look back and see how did the church do this when the Apostles' Creed was being formulated in the first few centuries. And so the issues may be slightly different today. It might be sexuality rather than the divinity of the emperor. But remember that in the early church, the fathers of the church were called to burn a pinch of incense in honor of the emperor as divine. It seems like such a small thing. Oh, let me just throw a little incense in. I'll walk away. I will repent. I'll forget that it ever happened. I'll go and worship the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It doesn't really matter. That's not what the early church did. And so we might be tempted to think, oh, the, 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 the world around us is wanting us to bend just a little bit here, just a little bit there. It really doesn't seem significant. We'll come back into church. We'll say the right and true thing in church. We're just called upon to, to fudge just a little bit somewhere else. That's not what the early church did. That's not what the martyrs of the early church died for. And we dare not transgress their memory by giving in on a minor point of doctrine when they refused to give in on burning a pinch of incense to the emperor. We dare not save our necks and our skins when they did not save theirs, but boldly confess the Christian faith in opposition to the demands of culture around them and received the white robe of martyrdom that we sometimes run away from. And so we learn from the early church what it is to confess and to stand and be faithful even under pressure. We cannot forsake the heritage given to us by our fathers in the faith, including the martyrs of the first three centuries of the church, by becoming traitors to the doctrine that we've been taught in any small form at the pressure of culture. We must continue to confess the faith as the early church did, using the creeds to guide and to formulate our confession before the world, because we are not given to change even one dot, even one stroke of God's word for the whims of the world. We may not do that. We are called to stand. We are called to confess. We are called to acknowledge exactly who Jesus is and what he has said before men, that he will then acknowledge us before his Father who is in heaven. We cannot be traitors to this tradition handed down to us over the centuries, and we must learn from the early church how it is that we stand and confess, why we stand and confess, even when we see what the results may be of standing and confessing. We confess 
the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and is his word alone as being the rule and guide for our life. So hearing you talk about the circumstances of the early church, uh, to do something like include some of the Roman gods or to offer a pinch of incense to uh, the emperor who uh, the world wanted to say was, was divine. And then looking at the text of the Apostles' Creed, these three uh, fairly short sections of a pretty short statement of faith, I guess there's part of me that wants to say, in light of the life and death situation that these early Christians were in, is the Apostles' Creed bold enough? Does it does it take that uh, statement of faith enough? Um, is it was this clearly perceived in that time, and is it clearly perceived in this time as being uh, revolutionary and as being exclusive that the worship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is uh, is completely and totally unique and that it changes everything in the life of a Christian? Well, let me first say that probably no formulation of the faith is ever fully satisfactory to every situation that arises. And the church is always called to be ready to clarify again, or clarify anew, or clarify in a different way what it is that we teach. The issue of sexuality may be one. And so has the church wrestled before with the idea that a person who was born with an XY chromosome might one day wake up and say, oh, I think I'm female and I'm going to participate in female sports activities and, and use a female locker room. Has that exact situation come up in our history in the past? Well, maybe not. So we may need to bring greater clarity and greater focus to what exactly scripture teaches us about God making them male and female and the blessings of the way that God has ordered our nature. The, the Apostles' Creed might not specifically speak with the clarity needed for that question. We see that happening already in the, in the early church. The Apostles' Creed is a good creed that is a basic summary of what it is that we believe and teach and confess as we join the Christian church. However, by about you know, the early 300s AD, there was a man named Arius who taught that Jesus, while being a, a wonderful teacher and a very powerful spiritual being, was not of the same essence as God the Father. And the church recognized that the statement that they had, even though not formally written down yet, used, such as the Apostles' Creed, didn't fully address that. And so they met in the city of Nicaea in 325 AD. And the result, after a couple of more um, church gatherings following that, such as in Constantinople and Chalcedon, came up with what we now have as the Nicene Creed, which clarifies more clearly the relationship of Jesus with the Father. And so you have the added words that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, and here's the kicker, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. And those terms are not included in the Apostles' Creed because that really wasn't necessarily the question when the Apostles' Creed began to be, began to be formulated. And so there's always the sense 
that as new challenges arise, the church may need to perhaps lengthen, perhaps clarify certain points of doctrine, but in no way does that reduce the importance of the creeds that we have received. And so the fact that in 325, the church clarified the divinity of Jesus by uh, formulating the Nicene Creed in no way makes the Apostles' Creed um, antiquated or uh, less important. And so based on the challenges we have coming at us today, we may need to formulate greater clarity in some areas, but we continue to treasure and confess these basic foundational statements of the faith that we have in the Apostles' Creed, also the Nicene Creed, and a little bit more elaborately in the Athanasian Creed, but especially the the Apostles' Creed. Um, It no way lowers the importance of these creeds. We may be called to confess more clearly in other areas, but we certainly continue to treasure this basic foundation that we have in the Apostles' Creed. Excellent. Uh, So we've talked quite a bit about the Apostles' Creed, but I think it's helpful and important for us to hear those words. And so the Apostles' Creed is recorded for us. We use it in uh, our church services in the Lutheran tradition, and it's recorded for us in the uh, Book of Concord, the Reader's Edition uh, of the Book of Concord on page 72. And uh, in the Lutheran service book, if that's something that you have uh, available to you, if you open just the back cover of your Lutheran service book, it's printed right there, uh, right in the inside back cover of your hymnal as well. But the Apostles' Creed goes like this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin. Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. Pastor Clayton, as I think about these words, it gets me thinking that uh, the beginning and the end are really, really straightforward and consistent with uh, the Nicene Creed and with uh, the Athanasian Creed. But there are a couple of parts in the Apostles' Creed, as it talks about Jesus, that don't show up in especially the Nicene Creed. Uh, It talks about how it is under Pontius Pilate that Jesus was crucified, and it references that Jesus descended into hell. Uh, We have about, oh, we have uh, a whopping about five minutes for two kind of really big uh, thoughts. But why is it important that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate? And what's the significance uh, in, in a really short form of Jesus' descent to hell? Well, it's interesting. The reference to Pontius Pilate takes the Christian faith in a way out of the realm of fairy tales and plants it smack dab in documentable history. In fact, uh, I remember a uh, course I took with Dr. Feuerhahn at the seminary at one point that he mentioned that a, a great liberal scholar said, 
that he was very happy confessing the creeds until he got to this part about Pontius Pilate. And then he would always kind of choke uh, because until you get to Pontius Pilate, everything can just be relegated to the realm of the spiritual. And we believe that there is this great deity. But when you start to say that he actually came into history, because Pontius Pilate is a demonstrable figure of history. And once you say that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, you are not making a spiritual claim. You're making a historical factual claim saying this really happened. And here's when it happened. We know when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea from the late 20s to the early 30s AD. I think maybe 27 to 35. I may be off by a few years one way or another there. But we know the dates that Pontius Pilate was in Judea. And so we know when Jesus was in Judea and when he was crucified and rose. It was within that time frame, within that window. If it would be documented to be outside of that, then the Christian faith would be proved to be inaccurate and wrong. Uh, But it hasn't been. All of the extra-biblical evidence, of which there is much, points to the fact that Jesus was active exactly where the creed puts him and exactly when the creed puts him in the time of Pontius Pilate in that area. And so, So that sounds like, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. And so to say that we recognize that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate moves the creed and moves the entire Christian faith out of simply the realm of spiritual speculation into actual factual history. And that seems like it's taking that idea of Gnosticism, that everything is spiritual uh, and that the physical doesn't matter as much by locating the Apostles' Creed and Jesus Christ himself in time. It's saying, yeah, this isn't Gnostic at all. Right. And also we'd mentioned a little bit about docetism, which says that Jesus didn't actually have a physical body. He didn't actually walk the dusty roads of this earth. I think one of the sayings of docetism, if I remember correctly from the the dusty recesses of my brain, is that if Jesus walked along a dusty road, you wouldn't see his footprints in the dirt because he didn't have a physical body to leave footprints. Well, this phrase of the Apostles' Creed, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, not only said that he left footprints in the dust, it said he left bloody smudge marks on the wood of a cross. That is how physical he was. He physically was nailed to a cross. Nails went through his skin, muscles, tendons into the wood of the cross behind. He bled real drops of blood onto the wood of the cross and onto the ground below. And he physically died. We see this coming out again at the end of the creed where we say, about the resurrection, that we believe in the resurrection, not of the person in some abject sense, not the resurrection of the spirit, but we say we believe in the resurrection of the body, that as Jesus bodily, physically rose from the dead, as his heart, which had stopped beating on Friday, resumed beating on Sunday, and the body of Jesus Christ physically emerged from the tomb, so we believe that we will bodily rise from the dead at the last day, and our hearts, which at some point will have stopped beating, will resume beating, our lungs will begin processing oxygen again, and we will emerge from our tombs just as Jesus did from his. 
Christianity is not an abstract spiritual religion floating around on the clouds. It's a flesh and blood religion that believes that our salvation involves our physical bodies and that we will rise physically just as Jesus rose physically. And so these words, crucified under Pontius Pilate, and that we believe in the resurrection of the body, root Christianity in all of its physicality and earthly glory uh, in the way that God has created us, as we talk about in the first article of the Creed, that God is the creator of heaven and earth, and that that creation is in God's intent good, and that is what we hope to be raised in, in the new creation with our physical bodies restored and living again, because Jesus physically died and rose. We will die and physically we will rise again too. And these words under Pontius Pilate and the resurrection of the body root us in that physicality. That is really helpful. And there are parts of that that I'm going to uh, be stealing. I I don't know if it's stealing if we put it out here on the radio. Uh, I'm definitely going to use, though, that we confess Jesus uh, not as somebody who didn't walk, but we confess a Jesus who left bloody smudges on a cross to give us new life. Uh, We didn't get a chance to talk about the descent into hell, but... uh, There is a wonderful episode devoted to just that topic from last June 2020, uh, and that will be available in the show notes to this episode uh, at kfuo.org. So feel free to uh, access kfuo.org for that information. If you want to tell us what you think about the Apostles' Creed and how this is uh, continuing to be helpful for us today. If you have any questions that you would like us to think about here on Concord Matters, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or give us a call at 314-996-1542 for the listener comment line. One more time, that's 314-996-1542 and leave us a message to tell us uh, what you would like us to keep considering as we confess this faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and in the Father and the Holy Spirit uh, together. It has been an absolute joy to have with us today uh, Reverend Dr. Kirk Clayton, pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Mascouda, Illinois. I am sitting in for Pastor uh, Sean Smith, who is taking some time with his family. Do keep him and especially his son in your prayers in the weeks to come, Uh, but he'll be back in about a month, and we sure do look forward to that. So, With that, we remember that we have located in history a Lord who has taken on flesh, who has suffered and died, who has called us to confess this faith before men. And as we confess that faith, it's important for us to do that wonderful and important work. Keep confessing, church. Church.